What's up, Harsh? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing well myself. What's been new with you? I bought a new car. Oh, nice. Congratulations. Did you fire your driver or are you still keeping him? Uh, I'm going to drive <laughs> it for a while myself at least. So this is my first automatic car. First Do you drive automatic. automatic or manual? Automatic. Have That's you ever like driven a manual? Here. Oh, it is? Yeah, man. I drove a manual one time. Um, I almost uh, died when I was driving a manual. Long story. I'm not going to get into it. Uh, but uh, this is your first ever automatic, you said? Yeah, this is my first time getting an automatic. So I, I used to like manual a lot. But lately, as traffic where I live has increased, it's just become really annoying to press the clutch, go in the first gear, then second gear, and you rarely get a chance to drive faster. So automatic seems far more convenient for today's times. Do you use it a good amount or is it something that's pretty rare? I'll use it at least three times a week. Three times a week. Okay. That's not bad. What about you? Because, yeah, I mean, I drive a, a decent amount. But I have noticed, Harsh, that as of late, a lot of people are just uh, turning in their cars. Like they're selling it off and they're taking Ubers. Because since the whole work from home thing, uh, I know individuals that don't have to, you know, drive to work, of course. So they're just like, you know, the whole idea of having a car, maintaining it and such, uh, I could just get an Uber instead. So it's like a new aged version of cable cutting, cord cutting. It's it's just like people are turning in their cars. See, I know what they, where they're coming from. Okay, I understand. And for the longest time, I would also prefer Uber over my own car. But I'll mm. tell you the bigger disadvantage of this. Uber lets you down when you really need it. For example, when you're in a rush, you need to get somewhere fast. That's the time <laughs> where you have to wait 20 minutes for an Uber. And frankly, aren't you tired of these small Uber cars? You just need something better, right? And you, you can't excel. leave stuff in the Uber. So uh, your own car has advantages. This is like, you see, Uber is, it's like a subscription service that can cancel you in a way. So mm. today Uber is not working, tomorrow it is. And <laughs> your transportation is dependent on someone else now. Yeah, and that that's one of the things that I didn't like about Uber. And it also depends where you live. Where if you're in New York, for example, Harsh, um, mm -hmm. most people just take a subway there. So having a car in New York, it's like, what are you doing? You could either just walk or take a subway to places. I see. So how do these people, say, go out of town? They have to like go to a nearby city. How do you do that? So that's a good question. There's a lot of places like Enterprise and Rent-A-Car where you could rent the car and it doesn't cost that much um, and you get it for a couple of days. So a while back, I got in a car accident and uh, I got one of the cars from Rent-A-Car uh, and it was a friendly dude that uh, introduced himself to me. And he's like, according to your insurance plan, you could have a choice from any of these four cars. I was like, okay. Uh, and I picked a, a pretty nice car that I normally don't drive. And all you have to do is take care of the gas. You got it for a couple of days. And then once you're done with it, you give it back. So there's not much uh, like maintenance costs and all of that. 
So I, I, I only had one experience with renting a car to drive ourselves. And that was when I was going trekking to this place. And we booked a car from this, this website called Zoom Cars. Have you heard of it? What's it called? Zoom Cars? Zoom Cars. Z-O-O-M. Mm-mm. I haven't heard of that. So it's a place where you can rent car for like a day or two days, three days. And you have to drive it yourself. And here's a messed up part. We got the car during the day, right? So we assumed everything was fine. And we're coming back at night. So it's about 12 a.m. in the night. And guess what? We're on the highway and we discover two things. Firstly, mm. the car's headlamps, only one side works. Ooh, that's not good. That's really, it's really crappy. And secondly, the, the lamps inside the car, they don't work. Oh, dang. That's really so, not good. Yeah, so we had to drive really slowly and on one side of the road because we didn't want to crash into somebody and we didn't want someone to crash into us. And when we were getting in the city, we had to be extra careful so we don't speed into, say, as you know, what's it called? A speed breaker or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the car had other issues too. For example, if you keep kept your steering straight, it wouldn't go straight. It would, it would slightly drift towards the left so the wheels were not correctly aligned. Oh, that's scary, man. So you had to constantly make the car go slightly right. And because this was a power steering, it would actually <laughs> take some effort to keep it towards the right. Well, that's an annoying thing about not having the car because now you have less control. And if you're one of those guys that, let's say it's three in the morning and you just want to wake up and go grab a snack from McDonald's or something, you don't want to call an Uber for that or someone else's car. You want to have something of your own. Uh, how important or how common is riding a bike over there? It's starting to happen. I've seen it on the Uber app, but frankly, I've never... You mean riding a bike as in riding it yourself or like an Uber bike service? No, just uh, riding it yourself and not a motorcycle. I'm talking about a, a bicycle. It's done by people who need the money and typically people who are delivering things like milk and groceries and things like that. Mm. but you will not find people actually traveling to an important place with a bike, with a bicycle. <laughs> Do you know how to ride a bicycle? Yeah, I'm, I'm really, really good at it. I haven't Are done you? it in a while. I haven't done it in a while, but I, I was really good at it. I, I, I've been riding bicycles ever since I was a kid. Mm. But the, in cities in India, it's not a safe thing to do, right? To take your bicycle out on the road. You're just asking for something bad to happen to you. Oh, yeah, man. Over in India, do people ride the bicycles on the actual road or is there a sidewalk for it? So there is no sidewalk. People will typically ride on the road, but -hmm. they will try to stay on the side, if you know what I mean. like There's no special lane, Mm -hmm. but people will typically keep their bikes and bicycles on the left. And it's generally considered bad practice for a car to block their route. Gotcha. See, that's the way it should be. I believe if you're riding a bicycle, it should either be on the sidewalk, if there is a sidewalk, or if it's on the road, you go all the way to the right. You don't make it inconvenient for the drivers. Or harsh. There's certain bicycle riders that literally drive on the middle of the road with the other cars. I've seen that yeah, before. So in your countries, it's, it's, they can do that safely. In India, people will kill them. Yeah, but it's not even safe, dude, because you could do that in the daytime, 
But in the nighttime, if you do that, you're just asking for it, man. I mean, there's this little red blinker that they have on the back of their bicycle. But I think they're at risk. Yeah, so if you're riding a bicycle, you're not protected at all. So a small hit is going to kill you or seriously injure you. So I don't get it. I understand you want to save the environment and everything, but the risk you have to yourself is so large. With a small lick from a car is probably going to send you crashing in the wrong place. Yeah. And you have nothing to protect you. So it's a very dumb thing to do, if you ask me. But, you know, natural selection is a thing and we should encourage more of it. <laughs> Continue on with it. Um, <laughs> a lot of these bicycle riders, they have a lot of pride, too. When If you ever confront them and you're like, hey, can't you get to the side of the road or... Uh, can you go on the sidewalk so you're making it easier for the other uh, the drivers? They'll be like, well, the law states that I'm a, I'm technically a driver too. So they have a lot of pride associated with riding their bicycles. And some people, Harsh, they spend a lot of money on a bicycle. Like I knew this uh, former Toastmaster who spent $20,000 on a, a bike. What? $20,000. I'm like, dude, you could have bought a car with that. That's a full Bitcoin. Yeah, and he just, um, he loved that bike. Like, he has memories with it. Um, in Toastmasters, you have a thing called the Icebreaker Speech. He bought that bike for his uh, Icebreaker Speech, which is like the first speech you give to uh, talk about who you are. He, he loved that bike, man. And I noticed a lot of bicycle riders, like, have that emotional connection to their bike. What's that? What's so special about that bike? Why is it 20 grand? That's crazy. You you would get like a car here for 20 grand. So I asked that question and he's like... Like a this... good car, not a bad car, like a decent car. Yeah, you could buy like a Honda Civic or something like that. Where he said, because multiple people asked him that question. And he said, well, this bike, it effortlessly goes up mountains. So it's a mountain bike. and It's a motorcycle. It, it's not even a motorcycle, dude. It looks like a regular bike with like strong s- steel frames. And he's like, uh, and it's not choppy while riding it at all. It just glides. Like he would just use that word a lot. It just glides. So uh, last episode, we were talking about how certain people have like an emotional connection to their pet. <laughs> this episode, we're finding out that uh, there's a lot of people that have an emotional connection to what they drive or what they ride. A lot of people do that, actually. But I'm still shocked that someone spent 20K on a bicycle. Yeah, dude. And it's not uncommon where there's a niche market for that, where we were asking this guy a lot of questions, and he's like, "Uh, trust me, um, I go to this um, conference. Like, There's conferences for uh, this group of people, too, that are bike enthusiasts. So you never know, man, what someone's interest is. And um, certain of these interests becomes collectibles. So this guy doesn't only have one bike. He has plenty of these. Um, But over time, you know, they get more expensive in models. Like he also had a $6,000 bike. So he he was like a 50-year-old man. So he's been collecting this for some time. Ah, I see, I see. So it's like a special interest he has. You know, some people collect watches. Some people mm-hmm. collect stamps. This guy collects bicycles. Yeah. Do you have something like that? Do you collect something? 
I love watches, man, uh, which isn't a good thing to say because, you know, certain watches are assets where over time they appreciate in value uh, and certain watches. It's just for show. But I, I love watches, man, like Armani Exchange, Fossil, um, different brands. What about you? I have no such interest, to be honest. I'm very de detached to material items, you could say. I've always been this way. So, for example, I mean, if you take watches, I've had the same watch for like 10 years now, maybe seven, eight. It's a G-Shock watch. And only mm. recently this year, I got a new watch. It's a smartphone. And the only reason I am wear this watch now is I didn't purchase it. I bought a phone and I got this watch for free. <laughs> and this watch tracks my steps, so it's useful. But I don't connect anything. It doesn't... I don't have an emotional attachment to stuff, you could say. Okay, so no cards, no shoes, nothing like that. So I have a bunch of shoes, but they're all stuff I need. For example, I have the shoe that dries really fast. So I have to sometimes go in places where it's very wet. Mm. And I can just leave it out overnight and it'll be dry. Then I have a very nice pair of trekking shoes because I trek a lot. I have good sports shoes, running shoes, etc. But I'm not collecting them or they're just functional requirements for me. So I have them. Right. It's more for utility. So nothing, man, nothing for a little bit of an emotional connection? Not particularly. I can't think of anything, to be honest. Well, what you're saying isn't out of the norm, where my dad is like that, where my dad doesn't have, um, he doesn't wear watches, doesn't wear jewelry. Um, he doesn't uh, collect new clothes. Like He's very much of a practical guy, uh, where you're very much like that too, where if it's practical, you're getting it. But if it's not practical, you don't need it. Yeah. So sometimes like if a family member asks me something like, okay, so what do you want for a birthday gift? I just, I just don't want anything. I have whatever I want. If I need something, I just buy it. And if I don't need something, I don't want it. If someone did want to give you a gift, what would be your ideal gift? Chocolate. Chocolate. So for me, it's a book. If you could give me a book, then I'd appreciate you for it. Not a tie and a watch. If you could give me a watch, I'd like that. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's hilarious, man, because... Um, Has to be a patek. <laughs> yeah, dude. Uh, there was this one Jerry Seinfeld episode where he got his girlfriend at the time money. <laughs> so he, I think he gave her $5,000 and he thought she was going to love it because she could now buy herself a gift. And she was furious. She was like, you got me money? How could you get me money? There's no thought behind money. <laughs> so she got, she was pissed, bro. Mm. I, I know where that comes from. Girls tend to spend too much time thinking about gifts and it means, it means more to them. For example, if you give a gift to a guy, he's not going to think too much about it. He bought me something or, you know, it's not something that we consider or hold to be something very endearing. But women, they, it really means a lot to them. So they, they, they put thought and time into getting the best gift they can that would be, please you the most or things like that. And for them, they expect to receive a gift of a similar nature. So they expect mm -hmm. you to think about it. And yeah, there needs to be thought behind it. Yeah, money is a practical gift. It's a gift for a man. <laughs> but for a woman, it's more like something that has some sentiment or something that shows that you care or something like that.
Oh yeah, man. There has to be a story in regards to it. That's why a lot of women love flowers. Like I had this ex-girlfriend that if you got her flowers, she's like, oh, oh my God. But for guys, it's like flowers are one of the most annoying <laughs> gifts, dude. Because it's like, what do I do with this? It's like if someone gives you a balloon for your birthday, you're like, oh, man, like now I got to just carry it around <laughs> all day. Hey, balloon is not a bad gift, though. But it's something fun to play with. <laughs> you know, the, the, the ones that float in the air. I remember having a lot of fun as a kid with them. Do you go all out for your birthday? Do you celebrate a lot? I don't celebrate my birthday at all. Mm-hmm. Most people are not aware that, you know, when my birthday is. And I think it... I cut a cake this year, but that was maybe after like 13, 14 years of not cutting a cake. <laughs> and that's simply because I was out with this girl and she bought me the cake. So she kind of like learned when my birthday was and then bought me a gift and a cake. And I didn't, I wasn't expecting it. It just kind of, she just got it. So I, I, I felt bad saying, no, I don't celebrate my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'll cut it. <laughs> Did you blow a candle and make a wish? Oh yeah, I, I didn't make a wish. I forgot about that. I didn't do the candle. So your parents didn't throw you much like birthday parties growing up. Yeah, my parents typically didn't care about these things, right? So in India, in Indian culture, they don't give too much importance to birthdays. This is more of a Western thing. So for example, with my father, we don't know what his accurate birthday is. So his birthday is just made up. Hmm. So and, what would happen is that back in those days, you would need a date to get you into school. So they would just invent a date. So he doesn't know what his accurate birth day and birth year are. And that's true for most older people in India. Like their birth dates are just made up. Absolutely. And for American listeners, this may be like, wait, what? Because your birthday is sort of like your name. Like, you know how Dale Carnegie said the name is the most important sound to a human. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, typical uh, people, the most important date is their birthday for them, um, at least in the West. So when uh, they're hearing, wait a minute, your dad doesn't even know his own birthday. Um, th- th- that's pretty common. Where even a lot of Bengalis here, Harsh, mm-hmm. they have two birthdays. They have the American birthday <laughs> and the, uh, the Bengali birthday. Yeah, so, the different calendar, right? Yeah, man. So it's like... It's like you're you're making a rough guess. You're like, I think it's your birthday, so here's a gift. Uh, but I don't really know. <laughs> yeah, so people from my family, right? So I come from a more traditional background, and they don't really they no one celebrated birthdays, and it wasn't considered to be a big deal. So mm-hmm. I grew up in that environment. I never valued a birthday. For me, it's just a day. And you're just one year older and closer to death. And that is nothing to celebrate. (laughs) What a, what a beautiful view. (laughs) Yeah. How old are you right now? I'm 30. Man, 30. You're 26. I'm 26. And I had actual trouble accepting that I'm 26 because 26 is like 60% of my twenties turn. Mm. And time just flew by, like it just flew by. I remember being 19 and Mm -hmm. reading this book called What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20. 
And I remember thinking, hey, I'm a year ahead. I'm reading this at 19. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. See, this is one of the reasons um, I, I don't really like celebrating birthdays either. Because people have a very negative viewpoint of birthdays. They're just like, oh, well, you know, one more year closer to death. Where for me, I feel like so excited. I'm like, I don't even like to use years old. Like when you think years old, it's too like physical in nature. I like to think like level 28, level 29, level 30. And this is, it just gets you more optimistic where, yeah, I mean, most people, man, like with birthdays, they have this very, it's one of those weird situations where they're celebrating with you, but back of their mind, they're like this poor sucker just getting one, <laughs> just getting older day by day. So it's, <laughs> so it's like, it's like a purity in terms of celebration, but darkness in the back of a lot of people's minds. See, I don't get birthday celebrations. It just, I didn't do anything, right? I was just born. And yeah. how is that worth celebrating? It's something worth celebrating for my family, mm-hmm. but not for me. I didn't do anything. Yeah, dude. Um, I think like your viewpoint is not actually too rare, especially among guys. I noticed a lot of guys are embarrassed when you're trying to do something for them, where I do know certain women that will have an entire week for their birthday yeah i know i know what you're talking about yeah that's really annoying that's really like, annoying i knew this girl her name was ishida and her birth her birthday was a day before mine right and um she was the best friend to my ex-girlfriend at the time and she oh, like so she just like uh she just like so what are we doing for our birthday i was like man i'm not trying to do anything for my birthday like i'm just trying to chill and for her, she had a whole week titled Ishvember. Because <laughs> <Or, laughs> her birthday was in November. It's like Ishvember. I was like, what the hell, bro? Like, I don't have time to go to your uh, your shenanigans for an entire week. You get one day, and that is all. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Ishvember. <laughs> Ishvember, man. I'm like, man, get out of here, bro. A week of torture. <laughs> yeah, dude. And the, the thing is, it gets expensive, man. You go into one uh, venue after another, after another. Like, do not be surprised if you end up spending like $500 that week. How much does it cost to get a decent meal where you live? So you go to a good restaurant mm-hmm. with two people. How much would the bill be? So if we're talking about like one of those special occasions, let's say it's your birthday, I would say you're looking at a $100 bill with two people. Plus can you show me what you mean? Can you can you show me a picture? Share your screen. Show me a picture of what you mean by a hundred dollar restaurant. Okay, I can see this. Yeah. So, th- so this is something that you can expect, like a meal. They'll give you a, a bottle of wine if you drink, and um, yeah. Okay, a place like this for two people in India would probably cost fifty dollars. Maybe for 45, people? 40, total, total. Okay. Do you mean $100 per person? No, uh, $50 per person, $100 total. And then you have to give a tip. So the tip normally comes out to like 20 bucks if you're paying 20%. So $120 total. Yeah, that, that's expensive. That's expensive. Yeah, but imagine going to a place like this multiple times throughout a week. Yeah, that's um, too expensive. No, nah, man. I mean, 
Yeah, so that that's the thing with birthdays. Um, do you have people in your close circle that are, you know, birthday enthusiasts? Fortunately, I do not, mm -hmm. except one person. But she's fine. She's a girl, so she gets some discount. Hmm. I, I'm less judgmental of them liking birthdays. <laughs> Do you know a guy that loves his birthday? Nah, not not one, not one. Okay, so I, I'm pretty sure that's a common quality. I don't know about common or not, but typically guys are more practical, you know, and they aren't. You don't get praise for free as a guy, so you don't expect it. For example, most guys, they don't get, you know, free shit or free compliments and things like that in their life. Mm -hmm. So if you take the average guy, he gets like one compliment a year. But yeah. the average girl maybe gets like five every day. Mm. When was the last time someone came up to you and just gave you a compliment and someone that you didn't know? Yesterday. Oh, okay. What was it for? Was it for your new car? Uh, not exactly. So I was buying a t-shirt and my arms were looking good. So there was a chick who was like, hey, your arms look good. Cool. Thank nice. you. Okay. But I well, do get compliments frequently because I'm very outgoing. So I tend to like talk to lots of people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you are more outgoing, people tend to like say what they are thinking. Right. You're... I'm pretty extroverted, right? I did their big five tests and I'm at 99%. So you're pretty extroverted. <laughs> Initially, when we were talking, uh, uh, when we were like, we were DMing in Twitter in 2018, where we didn't really know each other like that, but uh, we were just talking about the a few guest posts that we were going to do on each other's websites. I recall you telling me that, that you were very, very extroverted. And for some reason, I thought... Just because, you know, your life math money, you're like, I don't know. It just seems like this very, I wouldn't say introverted, but did people have that assumption that life math money was more introverted than extroverted? Not you, people the person, but life tend math money. To assume that. People tend to assume that, but I'm extremely extroverted. It's For mm. me, it's very easy to make friends or to talk to people or things like that. So I've never had too many issues with women and getting network connections or things like that, you know, anything that, that involves people, I'm usually very good at. Mm. So would you say you're a nat natural? You've always been like this? I think so, because ever since I was a kid, my mother says I was extremely friendly and outgoing and I would make friends with all the kids and I would just mix with them very well. So mm. probably something that I, that's been around since I was a kid. It's not something I've had to work on. I just got it for free. But social skills, like as in learning to be likable, knowing what to say and when, those are things I've had to learn. Okay. Uh, so you've been pretty good with the networking part, but you did mention there was a certain period where you were very harsh on people. So here's the thing. It's one thing to be extroverted and one thing to know when to say something and when not to. For mm. example, back when I was a teenager, so if you were fat and you said, I'm trying to lose weight, but at the same time, let's say you're eating something fatty, 
I would say something like, hey, so why are you eating that? That's retarded. <laughs> but I would not do that today. It was just a lack of understanding of people. But how old were you then? 16. Okay, okay. I was going to say, if you were like seven or eight, that's something you could pass off. But 16, okay, th- that makes sense. See, 16, I was very shy. Um, so we were pretty opposite. But childhood-wise, I was very talkative. So I believe childhood-wise, we were very similar in that regards. So you were never at... Are you uh, able to say if you're an only child or not? Or is that classified? Classified. Classified, okay. Um, I have noticed, Harsh, that a lot of only childs um, are very, very uh, good at communicating. If they're the only childs that had um, a lot of love from their parents... But there's also another type of only child where their parents were always out or they may have even been divorced where this type of only child is very uh, more like a loner. So that's one thing I've noticed with only childs. They could either be very, very uh, communicative, like they're, they're used to getting a lot of affection or they're very much like a loner. And if they're loners, they're very creative in nature. It's just a pattern that I've noticed. I think that your level of extroversion comes down to genetics. But I can see how not being exposed to social scale, you know, social situations a lot where you don't have to talk to too many people in your childhood and as you grow up can make you a certain amount of shy and less open. But I don't mm. think it has much to do with their upbringing. I think it's more genetic. More genetic. Okay. Um you see, it's a little like this, okay? If you have a dog or you used to buy five dogs, different dogs will have different personalities. Some dogs will be more outgoing. Some dogs will not be. People mm. are like that too. Some, you're just born this way. Mm. I can see that. But of course, you can fuck it up, right? You can, you can take an extremely extroverted kid and not give them enough opportunity to develop their natural personality. And you could turn them into a very shy person. So you can screw it up, but yeah. you can't change an extrovert to into an introvert and an introvert into an extrovert. You can just screw up their mental models. Were, were your parents strict growing up? Define strict. So did you, were you allowed to go to parties or, and go out to people's houses? Or were you normally expected to go to school, then come back home? So yeah, if that is a definition of strict, my parents were really strict because I don't think I ever went to a party or anyone else's house in my entire school life. But what if you wanted to? Would they allow it or would they be yeah, like, they, no, they no. wouldn't, they wouldn't, they wouldn't. So I'm really surprised you became extroverted, but now it makes sense because you're going with the perspective that it's genetic. It's genetic. It, it, it really is. This is something I've observed. Like it's something you have as a kid or you don't. Hmm. And you see this not just in humans, you see this in animals too. It's like you, ha- you just take a dog, okay? A dog can either be extroverted or not. Right. Or aggressive or not. It's something that the dog was born with and the same thing applies to people. And you can teach people things like you can teach dog things, dogs things. So you can teach an introverted person to interact more. And you can teach an extroverted person to interact less. But the natural tendency is still there. I sort of agree with that, but I also have seen 
outliers. Well, I don't want to make the outliers the discussion, but I've noticed that a lot of people that were very extroverted earlier on in their lives, as they start getting a family, kids and stuff like that, they become more introverted where they're just like, man, I need to go home and recharge. Right. Um, but with the with the animals thing, I have noticed that where there's like two stray cats not too far away from here. One stray cat, like you, you go up to it, it runs away. It's like a straight up sissy. It's a scaredy cat. While the, <laughs> while the other cat is always... What's the other word to... for that, Arman? Huh? The one from P. <laughs> it's a pussy, man. <laughs> the other one, uh, the, it's an orange cat. It looks like Garfield. If you've ever seen Garfield before. It's so social, man. Like It always comes up to you. Uh, it, um, it never runs away from you. And the scaredy cat is super skinny, while Garfield, the orange cat, is super fat. And I was like, how do you get this fat and you're a stray cat? It's because it's so social. It's just going up to different people and it's like, give me food. Oh, you reject me? Okay, I'll go up to another person. And I've seen that. I was like, man, like these two cats have personalities. Yeah, animals have personalities. It's a thing. Mm -hmm. And people do too. It's, a, it's something you're born with, in my opinion. In my experience, I will say that. Because kids will exhibit certain traits right from when they were young. Mm, I don't know, man. I, I I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say it's fixed. I would say it's dynamic. See, I'll I'll, I'll give you. You're not wrong, but I, I want to give you an analogy. Okay. Mm -hmm. Let's take a speedboat and a regular boat. Now you can take the speedboat and drive it slow, or you can take the regular boat and maybe drive it faster. But the natural tendency of the speedboat would be to be slightly unstable and go really fast. And the natural tendency of um, a regular boat would be to go slow, more stable, etc. So, mm -hmm. yeah, you could, you could, I mean, of course, the difference is not as large, but you could use one tool that you have in a different way. But you can't change the tool you have. Mm -hmm. I, and I'm not sure if it was a good analogy, but... No, it, it was a good analogy. And I do uh, see certain merit in that where certain people do have this natural gift. And now for them, they just need to not screw it up and just sharpen this natural gift more. Where others, they don't necessarily have that natural gift. But see, my analogy, Harsh, would be more so like the bodybuilding, like muscles, where you could be super skinny, but if you work it out, right if you work out your muscles then you can have a different kind of body now granted there's certain people who have great genetics um i know like you know not to be racist or anything like that but a lot of my black uh, friends they're they have supreme genetics like one they could like literally just eat cereal barely ever work out and they have a six-pack or a I've heard that they were bred for that like in america when they were like when they had slavery i heard that they would breed black people so from what I understand, mm -hmm. after they banned actually bringing slaves from Africa to America, the American people, they started breeding them. So they, they would have these farms where they would select like the strongest black person and they would have them mate with all the women and they would try to produce stronger black children. So if you go mm -hmm. to Africa, you don't find the strait where black people tend to be extra strong. But in America, you do. Okay. That may make a lot of sense because 
I'm telling you, they have amazing genetics where they don't have to focus so much on like the meal prep and counting calories and that sort of stuff. Uh, they have that baseline level of athleticism. Now they just got to sharpen it. Or if you're a brown guy, <laughs> it's the <laughs> it's the exact hey, opposite. Smarter, so. <laughs> well, at a baseline level, dude, we're not like born with this amazing physique. Like we have to work very, very hard for it. You have to count your calories. You have to uh, do a certain nutrition. But eventually, you, you could build that level of athleticism. You can get ripped. So that's my philosophy in regards to personality too. Like you may not have that baseline, but you could work it out. You could do what's uncomfortable for you. So if you're an introverted individual, stay a little bit longer in that event, especially when you're getting tired. Just be like, nah, man, like let me stay one hour longer. And this is equivalent to doing a bicep curl, but personality addition. And no, if you're, I, you're, you're misinterpreting the word, I think. What I mean to say by extroverted is that you you know how you just said that an introvert he would want to go away but he would stay an hour and that would be like an extra rep he puts in but yeah. that's because it's unpleasant for him right um he he doesn't want to do it but he's doing it to get better at it Correct. as opposed to an extrovert who who wants to stay more because he finds this activity to be fun so do you see yeah. the difference the difference is not your ability to stay a certain amount of hours in a social situation the difference is that the introvert doesn't like it as much. He finds it tiring and the extrovert likes it and he wants to do it more. Correct. No, no, no. I, I, I get that part, dude. What you I'm can't switch to... that in the sense you can't train an introvert to not get tired by, with social conventions, uh, you know, these social situations. And you can't train an extrovert to hate being social. I think um, we're getting a little too carried away with the, the introvert, extrovert definitions and it works very well in terms of a societal scale when you're thinking like big picture yes a lot of individuals have introverted and extroverted like tendencies but as individuals we're more ambiverted in nature and it depends on the scenario where there's the, there's this misconception that like let's say an introverted person it's like if it's an it's in if it's an event uh, then they're most likely going to get tired and it's like that's just basically what it's going to be like but there's a lot of scenarios where if you change the context just a little bit, let's say this introvert is with his buddies in um, like for his wedding or something like that. Now that thing changes like they could have fun for an extended period of time. So thinking with individuals too much of introverted or extroverted, I believe just messes things up. Like with individuals, you should view yourself as an ambivert. Where with societies, it's good to view it in introvert, extrovert, whatever. I don't know, man. Like uh, the whole Myers-Briggs exam, all of that stuff. I view it sort of like the IQ exam. It's, it's good, but it, it could get you thinking too much in concepts rather than the real thing. I think that any label you put on yourself kind of holds you back in a way. Mm. But at the same time, knowing how you are helps you plan and understand things. For example, if I'm extremely extroverted and I get into a very lonely profession, my life would be shit, right? Because I wouldn't be doing something that's natural to me. And what I am doing, I would find suffocating. As mm. opposed to if you are a massive introvert and you have to become a bartender, that's probably not going to be as much <laughs> fun for you. 
there's a lot of truth into what you said. Um, I know this uh, super introverted guy that was trying to start his own um, like brand, a personal brand, and he just did not like being in front of the camera at all. Um, yeah, you're right about that. And in the same breath, it could also make you make excuses a lot. It's like, oh, well, no, I can't. Uh, I can't stay too long because I'm an introvert. Oh, no, I cannot meditate because I'm an extrovert. So it's it's both sides of the coin. Where it, it yeah, does you have, have some, to, to try to go ahead. Well, it does have some utility, but it also has some like setbacks as well. If you want my philosophy on it, you should take what is useful and not take what is not. So take all the advantages you get from being an extrovert, but don't take the disadvantages. Mm. That's true. So for example, if you think that you're smart, so you're able to do certain things, that's good. You've taken the advantage. But you shouldn't think the way that, okay, I'm smart, so I won't do this. Or I can't do this. Or if I do this, it would not be the right thing. Or it would look bad or whatever. So don't use a label to prevent you from doing something. Use it as a thing to allow you to do something. And I want to define label here to mean personality traits and not like something like a profession. Mm. Because there are certain professions which are more like labels and there you really might need to consider what you can and can't do. For example, if you are a priest, that's a label. But <laughs> there you mm -hmm. really want to care about what you're doing, right? You don't want to be hanging around strip clubs. <laughs> it's funny. A lot of strippers, dude... Um... Do you know any strippers? Uh, that's not, it's not a thing here in India, so I do not. But I know one on Twitter, and she says that she's been receiving fewer tips, which means that the economy is about to crash, according to her. I don't know how true that is. But she mm. says that this is, what, this is how it happens. Every time there's a crash, mm -hmm. it starts with strippers not making money. I've never heard that before, but... I can see. Uh, I can see. I, some truth I, it in seems that. plausible. It seems plausible. <laughs> Dude, strippers know so many secrets because people that shouldn't be going to strip clubs often go to strip clubs. Like a lot of married men, a lot of people of religion, a, a lot of people that you wouldn't expect go to strip clubs to get away. And these strippers know a lot of dark secrets. So every now and then, uh, one of these strippers goes viral on YouTube. And they're talking about how many married men that they've slept with, uh, how many uh, like priests right after giving a sermon came straight to the strip club. Um, it's a, a lot of dark stories, man. But sex workers, I'm sure, know a lot of um, like the dark sides of a human. What exactly do strippers do? So strippers, they there's different tiers. So at the baseline level, if you just go in. Um, you pay an entry fee, let's say, of 20 bucks. You get to see them dance. So they have strip poles. And a lot of the strippers are barely wearing any clothes. And once they get on the strip poles, they uh, dance to the music and they casually take off their clothes. So that's the baseline level. Now, let's say you, Harsh, you're at the strip club and you have extra money to spend. And you want uh, to get a dance solo. You don't want to see them on stage. You want them dancing on you. So that's when you give them, I would say, $20 bills. Like, that's the standard. And now they're over here dancing on you for each song. 
So if you listen to, if they dance for two songs, which are four minutes each, then you'll pay 40 bucks. Now, let's say, Harsh, you're just like, man, I like, I like this stripper a lot. I want more of her. Uh, that's when there's a thing called the back room. So you could go in the back room and what happens, it really depends on the strip clubs. Like some of them, like, I don't know, uh, like they may kiss you or something, or they may do even something more, but that's like the day in the life of a stripper, a big picture. So it's like a blue collar job in a way. Yeah. I mean, you're over here selling your body, you could say. And a lot of the strippers, dude, I mean, they're college students that are trying to uh, uh, pay money for tuition. You'll be surprised when you hear that. Because let's say, Harsh, let's still keep this example going. Uh, you're over here bonding with this girl. You guys go to, to the back room. You guys are talking. You're like, well, what made you become a stripper? A lot of them will say, well, I'm trying to pay my way uh, to med school. So, <laughs> I mean, that's one of the reasons why. And within the strip club, uh, there's uh, hierarchies as well. There's the younger girls who are like the people that are trying to make money for school. And then there are the, the vets. Uh, they've been there for some time. Uh, they're like the 40, 50-year-olds where um, the vets are often jealous of the new ones because the new ones are taking in more clients while the vets, they have more experience, but they're not necessarily being rewarded for being a 50-year-old stripper. <laughs> so... That's yeah, this is not an this is not that business, you know, where being experienced pays more. Yeah, yeah. So uh, th there's a lot of uh, politics and stuff within the strip club as a whole. Then you have the the strip club promoter. So that's how I, I learned about a lot of the politics of it. Like I used to know one of the promoters of a strip club, and he'll just like talk about the business side of it. So you're like you have to get music, you have to get liquor, you have to get the women. But he calls that a primal business. I believe Floyd Mayweather has uh, owns a lot of strip clubs because he's like, 500 years from now, people or men are still going to want women and liquor. So he's like, that's a bulletproof business. Yeah, he'll be surprised. Yeah, so I I'm surprised that India hasn't had uh, strip clubs infiltrated yet. It's illegal here. Oh, it's illegal. Yeah, it's illegal. You can't you can't start a strip club. But I'm surprised. I'm, I'm very surprised that pe girls have to resort to stripping to pay for school. That's crazy. That yeah, wouldn't dude, fly here. Because think about it like this, dude. Let's say you do. Let's say you do uh, a couple of dances. Uh, um, you get a few of these wealthy people to give you like the backroom service. You could easily clear fifteen hundred dollars a night. And what's tuition? I mean, tuition. Let's say it's a good school. You could pay ten grand per semester. You work a couple of shifts, and you got your tuition money. And it's That's fast, crazy. Cash. Yeah, That's dude, crazy. it's fa fast cash. Some of them, man, you can't even expect it. Like, like some of the strippers will be like, um, "Oh yeah, I come from a religious household. Uh, my parents are together. Like, they're very loving and such." I'm like, "Then how the hell did you find yourself in this position?" <laughs> um, but it's one of those things, man. So it's like uh, you, you get a lot of fast money coming in. And it's like, what do you need it for? See, I think in your country's prostitution is not legal, right? The day it becomes legal, I would be surprised if these strip clubs are still around. Mm -hmm. 
strip clubs are probably like the like if you're a broke dude, it's probably one of the worst things you can do because it just the money just flies like that. Just like a stripper making fifteen hundred dollars in a night, you could just lose fifteen hundred dollars in a night, and then the next day you just feel dirty. You're just like, what the hell? So if you're yeah, you like, didn't well, even get anything, like you didn't even get anything of value. Yeah, so a lot of these strip club promoters, they teach the strippers, like, you're selling these guys a dream. You're not selling them you. You're selling them the fantasy of being able to get you. And that's how you basically take them through the funnel. <laughs> because the strip club is technically a funnel. <laughs> they see, like, you see the general dances, the individual dances, and then the back room. So these strippers need to be business-minded as well. And uh, you said something about them being, like, blue-collar workers. Yes, and they're also sort of like consultants where they come, a lot of them choose their own hours. <laughs> so it's it's a business in itself. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, dude. So th th that's one of the, uh, like, have you ever heard of Las Vegas? It's a gambling city. Yes, I'm aware of it. I've seen it in movies, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. It's gambling and like the strip club city. It's like you got a lot of gambling and uh, like a lot of the, famous strip clubs in the U.S. are in that location. So that's where the mantra, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, comes from. Mm, interesting. So have you been there? I've been to a strip club before for a, a birthday. And no, to Vegas. Vegas, yes, I, I have been to Vegas before. The first time I went was for a marketing conference. The second time it was for um, a get-together. It's nice, man. I mean, uh, it's um, how can I describe it? It's like a little place where magic happens. Like there's like magic shows. There's uh, gambling. There's a lot of things for people to do. You'll see a lot of like events being hosted there, right? A lot of boxing events and such. But outside of that small area, it's so normal. <laughs> it's like families live there. Um, like blue collar people live there. They have amazing real estate as well. So Vegas is very unique in that regard. It's like it's like one part seems completely different than the rest. That's typically the case where these places are, right? These entertainment centers. That's mm -hmm. how it is. There's a small place, which is entertainment center. Right. And the rest of it was the, is the old town where people live. And it's pretty normal. Yeah, and if you're living in Vegas, like you're most likely going to go in the entertainment route or you're going to go in the Uber route. <laughs> so, um, like when I went, uh, like I, I would get some Uber uh, drivers. Oh, Uber drivers are like, I just dropped out of med school recently. And I was like, wait, you did what? He's like, yeah. Um, and my brother, he was an actual doctor and he stopped being a doctor. We're both Uber drivers. We get to choose our own hours and... Uh, we take all these tourists around and we make a lot of money. So uh, within that sphere, a lot of people are in the entertainment or hospitality side of things, but they're driving Ubers. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, just think about it, bro. Like you're quitting being a doctor. Like how long does it take to become a doctor in India at least? 10 years. Same in U.S. And then suddenly it's like you have this revelation one day. You're like, but I hate my job. I'm quitting. I'm driving Uber. 
Yeah, he didn't even think about it so that he would he enjoy Uber or not. Because oh, Uber, Uber is not oh he loves Uber. Okay. Mm-hmm. Ah, interesting. Because he's, he's a talkative guy and um he's uh, like he loves driving, he's talkative, and um he gets to choose his own hours. How much does a doctor make where in, in your countries? I've heard they make a lot of money in the US. Yeah, they make a lot of money, man, and it really depends. Um I can never get a straight answer out of doctors I know. They're like, oh, tell me when I'm done paying off my loans or ask me when I'm like, you know, because they pay a lot of loan money. I think the only people who make money in your country are all these loan people. They're the ones who are making money <laughs> off of everybody. I mean, it says um, in Tampa, like a typical doctor is making 280K. That's not a lot for a doctor, right? No, but the Tampa's cost of living is low. Let me see in New York. In New York, it's showing it's even less. I mean, I don't know how accurate these are. It says 172K. That's not good for New York, right? Would you ever want to be a doctor? No. No. I don't like the whole medical thing. I don't like the smell of it. I don't like what they do. Mm-hmm. And to be fairly honest with you, it's it's not something that... I mean, let's say you're a doctor, right? Mm-hmm. You're constantly in contact with sick people. That can't be good for you. Right. If you weren't a businessman, like what sort of corporate job would interest you a nine to five i would probably be a kindergarten teacher what (laughs) explain i just like kids they're very cute (laughs) and you like teaching so that makes sense yeah i really love kids they're they're very sweet Mm. so i was that's probably the last teacher that's probably the probably. last uh, answer I was expecting from you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one expects it. I thought you were going to say uh, an accountant or a male stripper. I wouldn't be a stripper ever. Like, you could not pay me for that. It just, <laughs> it just, I don't know, maybe it's just my morality or, you know, the morals I grew up with, but it just feels like it's beneath my dignity. And mm. it's not something I would do. Unless I was doing it at gunpoint, at in which case, you know, it's like a moot question, right? Right. What What about you? What would you do if you had to work a job and you were not allowed to do or use your current skills? I'll be an engineer. Like, I, I really, um, it's actually strange, Harsh. Like, I knew at age five, I wanted to be an engineer. Um, and... Uh, just like know, all Indian children. Yeah, well, my dad <laughs> Doctor told me... Or engineer. Yeah, my dad... Uh, <laughs> I think my dad, I don't know if it was my dad or someone, they looked at my brother and they're like, you're going to be a doctor and you're going to be an electrical engineer. And that was literally my life for a long, long time. And um, I, I really enjoyed being an engineer. And I still like, you know, uh, I went from electrical engineer to systems engineer. But I love that whole grind, like problem solving, working with people, uh, the hard skill side of it. Um, so it's very unique. And so I would, answer engineer hmm. i don't know if i could be a teacher dude like a legitimate teacher because um 
you need a lot of patience for that no with children also like even if you're impatient you're likely to be patient with kids it's not that hard like kids are very sweet mm. and they it's it's very hard to get angry at a very small kid okay that, well that makes sense but the sweet part i mean i don't know about that dude like i've seen a lot of kindergartens well, when i was a kindergartner bro like we used to give miss jacobson hell <laughs> she she'd like look at us she'd be like oh what sweet kids and like we were just over here running around and stuff like that so it felt like a babysitting position yeah i don't know see if i did, if i didn't do that let, let me think of a third answer well, what's i don't your want second to answer so my second answer was the kindergarten kindergarten teacher right the first answer is being a businessman like that's what i'd like to do oh no we're removing businessman we're just talking about 9 to 5 right now oh like a, like a proper 9 to 5 yes proper 9 to 5 or something that's not business related so it could even be consulting work like a lawyer i could be a lawyer but i would probably not be the type of lawyer how most people think of lawyers but i would probably just take cases that i find are true like i would i i would be very surprised if i ever represented a person who was guilty mm so i would probably win every time or close because i would not represent someone who i felt was not innocent or was not in the right yeah dude that that's where the the law business can get very scummy where you know your client did it but you're basically looking for holes in the other person's argument um like a while yeah, back mm -hmm. you're right uh, but i don't know i don't think i could take a case where the guy killed someone and i'm helping him get away like that's not going to happen right and that's like the the dark parts of being a lawyer which you don't even have to take up a case like that you're talking about defending someone who's being wrongfully accused yeah moreover what i mean to say is that if you are a victim or you know if you're genuinely right that i'm happy to help you out right let's say you kill someone in a car accident mm -hmm. and it wasn't your fault or something like that then i'll probably take your case but if you kill someone because you were drunk then i will not mm makes sense yeah so maybe i would not be a rich lawyer <laughs> <laughs> well i wonder how much morality plays into law uh, i mean like are you going in with that uh, the thing where it's like i'm just focused on the case not the moral side of things or are you uh, like i i know your stance like you're factoring in the morality first but i wonder what the general lawyers are like where have you ever heard of harvey weinstein I am familiar with him. He's from the Speakly Blinders TV show, right? The the guy with the the cut who's who knows everything and I don't know about that, but um he is basically who ins uh, like inspired the entire Me Too movement. Uh he was this famous producer, I believe the founder of Miramax, and he had a lot of power in Hollywood. Uh he had the ability to either make or break your career. And eventually uh, I, I know who you're talking about sorry I, i was confusing it for thomas shelby thomas shelby okay um eventually he started to hit on a lot of uh women and um uh what do you call it he, he would uh, harass them 
and eventually um, different people started to come out. A bottom line is that his lawyer is a woman. So a lot of people were going at her. They're like, where's your morality? There's uh, there's tape, audio tape of him harassing people that uh, do not want it. Like, why would you even defend someone like this? And this woman, the woman lawyer was like, well, first of all, I'm defending the case. And second of all, that's when she started to say that she didn't think that the women were telling the truth or not the full truth. But that's where it, it comes in. It's like, for law, do you get trained for morality or do you get trained to win cases? I've had this conversation with a few of my friends who are lawyers and I've gotten similar answers in general. Mm -hmm. And it's that you, they're taught that the morality in law is very different from actual morality in the sense that just because a law says something doesn't mean it's moral and vice versa. For example, mm -hmm. in Nazi Germany, it was law that if you find a Jewish person, you should report him to the authorities and the authorities would probably kill him. So that was in the law, but it was not a moral thing to do. So the law and morality have nothing to do with each other. Okay. Morality is more along the lines of the person who is drafting a law. So when you're making a new law, that's when you should consider morality. But okay. when it comes to enforcement, that's when these things stop applying. Gotcha. Because the laws are made keeping certain things in mind and they have certain goals they want to achieve with those laws. Those goals can be good or bad. But as a lawyer, you can't conclude that just because the law says something, that thing is good or because something is illegal, that thing is immoral. Mm. I'll give you an example, okay? So in the past couple of years, we had these laws saying that if you didn't take two injections, you couldn't go out or you couldn't go here and there. Now, is that a moral law? It's not. But right. a lot of people would, they, they used to think that, hey, the law says that's what must be good. So legal morality and actual morality are completely independent concepts in many ways. Gotcha. So what if you're a lawyer and your boss says like you have to defend this person and like it's one of those situations where you know the guy's guilty but in the court of law you know that you could get him off what are you doing so i didn't think of that situation where i would have a boss for some reason when you mentioned being a lawyer i thought i would be a sole practitioner or a partner or something okay i don't yeah. know i've never had a boss to i, I can't i can't tell like i've had Never had like a serious boss, but probably I would not do it. Mm -hmm. Like I'm a guy who after three years of massive propaganda, I'm still not vaccinated against COVID. So it's unlikely some guy is going to convince me to go against my morals in something that I care about so much. Remember um, one of the episodes we were talking about if it's genetic on how much risk you can take? Because you mentioned that a lot of your net worth has dropped uh, due to the Bitcoin plummet. And mm -hmm. you're like, well, I genuinely can take a lot of risk. Um, do you think it's also like that with, let's say, someone who's willing to walk away from a boss? Or I, like, I'm sure we all know someone who is getting in an argument with a boss. But in the back of their mind, they can never walk away. They'll never be like, uh, like screw it to the boss. Uh, maybe because of a underlying morality or something like that. They just cannot walk away from a boss. 
Where for you, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I could easily walk away from my boss and I'll probably find another opportunity. Do you think something like that's genetic? Uh, because that still factors into the risk uh, tolerance we were speaking about. It's probably a mixture of genetics, but I would say this is something that's more environmental in how you were brought up. Mm, okay. So I was not brought up to be very submissive. I was brought up to think independently and it was just how I was raised, right? If 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 something is wrong, then it's wrong. And I was not brought up in a way where money was considered to be extremely valuable and above everything else. Mm-hmm. So probably that plays a role. You can't mm-hmm. really tell though, because... I don't know. I think personality traits do matter because even if you are, if someone's say naturally somewhat submissive, then they will probably listen to their boss, despite how you raise them. Mm-hmm. So it's a mixture of both. Yeah, because I noticed harsh certain people like they love to be told what to do, but if you don't tell them what to do, they seem like a straight up buffoon that can't think for themselves at all. Like you have to literally tell them what to do, where others like. Since they know what to do so well, they find it very difficult to take um, orders from someone else. Um, Like there was this one time I was trying to get this thing designed. And this designer was amazing in in terms of how he designed stuff. But you have to explain the concept to him. But if you did not explain the concept, you're like, oh, lead with your own creativity. This guy would just malfunction. He's just like, oh, uh," you know, he didn't know what to do at all. So your ability to walk away, I mean, it also comes down to how much individual thought are you capable of? And this requires a lot of self-awareness, man, because a lot of individuals, like they don't know how much uh, they're being told what to do because it's just integrated into their life. Like a typical workday, there's certain, like for a lot of average engineers, like you just do certain checklist items. Where are those checklist items coming from? There's an, uh, a creative mind that is like giving you these items. If they were not giving you these items, are you capable of generating your own items? So your ability to walk away, it, it really ties in with your creative thought. Are, are you capable of creative thought or are you just someone who needs to be told what to do? I'll, I'll give you some more context. I think you're arriving at something interesting, but... I think most people have the ability to walk away when they are reasonably confident that they can get a different opportunity Mm -hmm. as opposed to someone who thinks he can't get a different opportunity will not walk away. So for example, like back in the day, right? My father, this is a story from my father. Mm -hmm. He used to work at this factory and this was in the, in the eighties in India. So this is a time where India was not very free. We didn't have the whole LPG movement going on. And jobs were really scarce. People were really poor. And he says that if there was this one time where this employee, this factory worker, an engineer at the factory, he kind of threw a tantrum. He was very upset about something and he got fired. And the guy started crying. This is a grown-ass man, maybe in his 50s. And he's crying. And he's like, please, I have children. Please forgive me. I didn't mean what I said. I was just very upset. 
and he just cried and the other employees in the factory came to the owner and the management and they kind of pleaded on his behalf saying that hey he's a good guy he just had a bad day and he just you know took it out on you know on the floor and he got his job back and this is a 50 year old engineer who was crying for a factory job and at that time i don't remember what my dad said but the salary wasn't something extraordinarily good or something it was something maybe like 50 dollars a month or something maybe i don't know Mm-hmm. you you can't expect that today today there are so many job opportunities that if you fire someone they're not going to cry at least not in front of you <laughs> that's never going to happen so things have changed and i think your ability to walk away comes from what options you have right to give yeah. you like a more relatable example if there's a guy who who's like a beta male okay can't get girls can't talk to girls and say he has a girlfriend and the girlfriend is breaking up with him this guy might actually cry because for him it's a huge loss right <laughs> yeah but you take your average guy who can talk to women and some chick breaks up with him it's like yeah so what who cares new girl tomorrow right so it comes back to the abundance mentality it comes back to not just the mentality but the facts of how things are Yeah and with the 50 year old gentleman you were speaking about I mean he also had a family too where if you have a family now it's it's a much different dynamic than if you're let's say a single man or a single woman because your family may be dependent upon you and the question is how much do you have in savings uh, what's the likelihood of you getting a job within let's say the next 6 to 7 months depending on the savings So I I have noticed that as well. Like if you have a family, the the ability to take massive risks like just walking away from your job because you don't agree fundamentally with the boss, uh that's going to depend, man. Where a single guy could be like, "Yeah, whatever. I, I don't have anyone depending on me. I could just dip." The crying There's thing a... is very individual. The crying thing is very unique, man, because I I've actually seen people cry when they lost their job. Like they're like they're over here packing up their stuff in their box and they're being escorted out by security guards and they gave the company let's say 20 years of their life and boom just like that they're getting fired and they're over here crying dude and it just um it just uh I just thought I shared that with you like cuz you were in the 9 to 5 grind but you weren't in it for long right I was never in the grind. That well Just, you did an internship there? Yeah, but it wasn't I I I was the least hardest working employee there. <laughs> did you see anyone get fired there? They don't fire anybody there. They just compel you to leave in a way. Mhm. So it, it's considered to be a bad thing to fire someone because when you fire somebody to get fucks with them, right? Like their resume will it you know if you fire if someone get if you get fired mm-hmm. then your pay stub or something whatever it is it's going to say fired and that's not good for your next job it it it'll cause trouble when you f- want to find a job so they just tell you okay we we're going to fire you mm-hmm. it's probably best you quit okay that's a very uh that's a very polite way of doing it or i mean i i've literally just seen people getting fired like and they they're not even given uh, like 
talking. Like no one even talks to them. They may get like a mass email or they may get like a, a pink slip. And you could get fired for some of the strangest things, man, where um, in my last job, dude, a bunch of people just got fired on, on one team just because a code replaced them. What they were doing, they were spending nine to five, uh, 40 hours a week doing a code just took all of their jobs. It was just baffling. It's like, oh, my goodness. Like the, the future is literally here. And some people, they get fired, bro, because they're gossiping too much and they're undercover racists. I've seen that before, dude, where there was like a guy that was poised to become a managerial director, which is a translation for uh, a big dog in the company. But then as he was rising up, Harsh, there was a lot of these whispers saying that uh, he was uh, making racist comments. And suddenly, dude, as the whispers started to get louder and louder, this guy in many ways got shadow banned from the company. So he didn't get fired, but he just didn't get the opportunities that he once did. So there's different kinds of getting fired, too. See, that's the thing about these companies, right? Where mm -hmm. it's not just about your competence. It's also about how you're perceived. So if you if you work at these tech companies and you are known as a red pill person, they may not fire you saying that, you know, he says things we don't like, but it's not likely that they'll put you on interesting projects or things that are valuable to the company. Mm -hmm. So it kind of hurts you in different ways. I, I think that's a shame, really, that your perception or whether or not you agree with the owners or the the what the prevailing perspective or zeitgeist affects you so much. Hmm. That's true. I mean, that's a, a form of shadow banning. It's not exactly shadow banning, but it's more like, you know how in earlier times, society would say, enforce its standards by shaming or outcasting people it's the same thing mm -hmm. but the only difference is that these guys are the ones who preach all tolerance and everything and they're the ones who do this the most right it's crazy man i mean what are your thoughts on elon buying twitter I was I was literally thinking about asking you that. You just read my mind. I, I think since us doing all these episodes together, we're starting to <laughs> read each other's minds. Um, I was thinking about that, dude, because I um I saw this uh, post for my high school professor who was uh, who became super left, and he was talking about how terrifying it is that Elon Musk bought Twitter and like how he had to take collaterals from Tesla. To fund his Twitter investment. And if Twitter doesn't do well, then Tesla is going to plummet. Uh, I don't know if this guy is just speaking conspiracy theories. Uh, he's like a super leftist guy too. So, But I, I just didn't know how the business was uh, business was you know funded, right? Because I, I don't know how liquid a lot of these billionaires are. But overall, man, I mean, I'm I have a positive perception of this. I believe Elon Musk, uh, uh, I don't think he normally is going to do things that are questionable towards free speech. So I have a positive view of this and the positive direction where Twitter is going to go.
I've seen a lot of changes have, have been made. So what do you think? Me too. I also think that Twitter is going to improve. But, and this is a big but, mm-hmm. I don't know how much it will improve by. Because it's not just the guy at the top who makes all the decisions, right? A lot of things come down to the people who actually get things done. And those people are also extremely leftist. So I think a complete change would require an, a nearly total team overhaul, which he seems to be willing to do. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I will see what happens. I generally think positively about this change. Mm-hmm. But I do. I would be surprised if it turned out to be a massive change. Right, right. My thing is, what does the change look like? Like, we gotta make sure we're on that correct understanding. What does it look like? Like, more people being able to say whatever they want without the left right tilt in the algorithms. What else? Like, are there anything that people can say that will get them banned? Or is that something that we're thinking about eliminating completely? There's a lot of these um, similar understandings that people need to have once they're the head honcho of a company. See, I think the biggest change would come in the fact that earlier Twitter has been extremely pro-left. For example, if you say something that's not pro-left, you would either get banned or you'd have some notice placed on your tweet, right? This Mm -hmm. tweet is misleading or something. And I think that would be more balanced now. In fact, there was this comical thing that happened where I think the White House posted something like, you know, the the people got the biggest checks ever under the Biden administration for something. Mm-hmm. And the Twitter people fact-checked it and it said that, yeah, but they got the biggest <laughs> checks ever because the checks depend on inflation. So no. the higher the inflation, the bigger the size of the check. And right. once that showed up, the White House deleted the tweet. <laughs> Well, that's good, man. If they could give more context to like these powerful people, then uh, it, it makes sense. But Have I you... think that doing that will make Elon and the company too many unnecessary empl- uh, enemies because at the end of the day, Twitter is not a profitable company and they might at some point require government help. And pissing off the government this way is probably not their best long-term move because Mm. this is elon on the line right so tomorrow let's say that tesla wants to make a new hole or a project or something and he's pissed off all these politicians what's going to happen the politicians are not going to let him do that the approvals will not come soon enough there will be issues with his existing projects so let's say his boring company is making a tunnel and Mm. the government wants to screw with him so they'll just cancel his permit, not issue him a new permit, cancel some licenses or fine him for some bullshit. And it's just not a good idea to make the government your enemy. Oh yeah, dude. Especially depending on your industry. A lot of people consider uh, the government to be one of their business partners or one of the stakeholders. They just found out that if they think like that, it allows them to make better long-term decisions. Because depending on your industry, if you're in energy, uh, you're going to have to deal with the government somehow, some way. So, yeah, it's best if you don't um, piss them off, especially if they're over here funding you in some way. 
you never want to piss off people that give you money. That's what I've realized. <laughs> um, have well, you allow hearing... you to continue your business, right? Yeah, dude. Uh, have you been hearing about the whole Kanye West, Kyrie Irving news? I It came up last time when we spoke, right? Mm -hmm. uh, where he said white lives matter. No, so th there's been a lot of stuff that's happened since then. So, so This is a tweet, sorry. Um, seniors are getting the biggest increase in their social security checks. And it's like, because the cost of living has been rising, that's why they're getting it. And then the White House deletes the tweet. Wow. And I have no idea part. how black people grow hair like this, by the way. Mm. Like, that's such thick hair. Yeah. Um. So with... But go ahead, what were you saying? So with Kanye West, so last time we spoke about him was the White Lives Matter thing. Since then, um, he's been... Um, getting a lot of heat because um, he's been talking about how a lot of people of power are Jewish and a lot of the Jewish people run uh, the media. And since then, he's been getting uh, a lot of his deals um, dropped. So he is um, he was worth two billion dollars before a lot of this controversy. But recently, Adidas dropped him and most of his money came from the Adidas partnership. So his two billion dollar net worth dropped to four hundred million. How does that make sense? So that makes sense um, because he is uh, the he provides the product, the Yeezys, the shoes, and uh, Adidas is the distributor. So they had this deal worked out where they're going to be uh, partnering for a bunch of different models, uh, but after the whole they they're calling it the anti-semitism controversy uh what happened was adidas ended partnership so that deal that made him a, a billionaire uh, was now terminated bringing his net worth to 400 million i think adidas needs kanye west more than the other way around mm. so we should probably start a competing shoe brand called so yeah. what's hilarious about this dude is have you ever heard of like the meme called like how sway how no <laughs> so so kanye west a while back he went on this um interview show uh by sway in the morning and sway is a legendary hip-hop dj and as he was talking to kanye west he's like to kanye why are you signing with these corporations for you're kanye west you should build your own thing from scratch and Kanye West at that time was like, no, I, I need their distribution. And Sway just kept pushing him. He's like, no, man, like, I really think you should start your own thing. And that's when Kanye West flips out. He's like, how, Sway? How? You ain't got the answer, Sway. It, it became viral, dude. It, it was a, a very iconic um, uh, rant by Kanye West. But recently he did an interview and uh, the news reporter was like, so what's Sway, right? Should you have just started your own thing all along? <laughs> and Kanye was, was like, yes, Sway was right. Well, he's smart. That That's a sign that he's smart because he's willing to admit he made a mistake. Yeah, man, because you gotta when you think of billionaires, you have to think who's really a billionaire and who's a handshake billionaire, where a lot of people are handshake billionaires, where they have this deal that's apparently worth a certain amount, but the deal has a lot of these clauses. Like you can't say this, you can't say that, you can't say that either. And if you do say something like that, then boom, the partnership is ended 
handshake agreement done, and then boom, your net worth is is slashed. So it's like when it's I think contingency of billionaire, billionaire, like maybe billionaire, Schrodinger's billionaire. Yeah, and so Kyrie Irving, have you ever heard of him? No. So Kyrie Irving, uh, last year became very popular, popular and polarizing uh, figure because he wouldn't take the vaccine shot, and um, New York would not let you play a game if you did not take the shot. So it was him sitting out half the games that were in New York. It caused a lot of controversy. So since then, what happened uh, was that he shared a documentary on Amazon uh, that apparently promoted anti-Semitism. And since then, the owner of the basketball organization uh, condemned him. Okay? It bought a whole bunch of... Um, attention on Kyrie Irving. And recently, I believe Nike ended partnership with him. And a lot of people are just ending their partnership with him. So just like that, two very prominent individuals uh, recently are getting canceled for some form of anti-Semitism comments. What exactly is anti-Semitism? I don't get it. So anti-Semitism, let me just make sure I get the exact definition. Like what did Kanye West say? Well, he was talking about Jewish media. He said that I mean, so people... What did he say about that? In the sense said... that... If he just said that the Jews own the media companies, is that really true or not? So I've seen different reports in regards to this. I mean, I don't know the accuracy of the reports. These are from a lot of um, individual journalists who are like, well, there's truth to what Kanye West is saying. Like, if you factor in the people who control the media a staggering amount of them are Jewish. So factually, I believe there's some, uh, there may be some truth to it. I don't want to say like fully if it's true. But, but if then it's true, then it's not anti-Semitic, right? If it, it is true. So hostility or prejudice against Jewish people. That's what anti-Semitism means. But I think Kanye West was also making some like very, let me, let me just see the post. He was saying something like he's going to go uh, so he posted this on Twitter. I'm a bit sleepy tonight, but when I wake up, I'm going DEFCON 3 on Jewish people. The funny thing is, I actually can't be anti-Semitic because black people are actually Jew also. You guys have toyed with me and tried to blackball anyone, whoever opposes your agenda. And I think Elon Musk even spoke to him about this. And this is one of those things where it's like, when you word it like that, it doesn't matter who you are, uh, especially if it's a platform, they're probably going to either uh, suspend your account for some time or they're going to uh, uh, flat out ban you. I, I'm not sure if he was banned, but I do think he was suspended after this. See, I don't know. What are your thoughts on the Jewish people? It's a very general question. Like, so I have this friend of like, I actually have a business partner who is a Jew mm -hmm. and that guy is incredibly intelligent. Right. Like, he's really smart and very hardworking. And to be fairly honest with you, I only know like a couple of Jewish people. Mm -hmm. So, and all of them, like all four or five of them, they're like really intelligent and they work really hard. So if that is true for the entire population, then you can't hate them for success. You know, then <laughs> they just earned it. Okay. So you're asking that, like, what do I think about Jewish people um, in terms of that? Dude, I'm not going to lie, man. Some of the most financially savvy people out there are 
Jewish, and it's not like this is one of those stigmas that are out there. I mean, what's like, wrong you, with that? Like, it's a yeah, good no, thing. No, no. no, and that's what I'm trying to say. It's like, um, like one of the stigma is like oh, black people can jump, and uh, you know, like that's just like a good thing. Where Jewish people are very, very, very uh, like smart with their money, and sometimes it could be um, misrepresented in a wrong way. Where some people are like, "Oh, he's a Jew." When someone says, "Oh, he's a Jew," they're actually saying that uh, this guy is cheap. So that, that's a figure of expression that often. Have you ever heard uh, that before? Like, I, I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, everyone has that, bro. Everyone has certain stigmas uh, with them, um, especially if you're living in the U.S. Because uh, it's it's a melting pot, and it's like everyone has stigmas. Some are good, some are bad, but we all have it. There's no denying that. I think in the West they had this thing where Hitler killed like lots of Jews. And that kind of makes people overreact, right? You say anything, it's anti-Semitic. Where even if it's just something that's factual. I mean, yeah, if someone said all Indians own all the media companies, I'd be like, yeah, that's amazing. Like, we should be proud of our people. They own all the media companies. It wouldn't mm. be considered anti-Indian. Mm. I mean, so this is a very polarizing topic where one group of people are like, See, uh, like Kanye West no longer being a billionaire proves that he's right because he's showing who you can't criticize. Then there's ah. another group. Then there's <laughs> another group of people that are like, man, Kanye West is just being Kanye West. If you followed his career for a long time, Harsh, he's uh, consistently um, done controversial stuff. Like he uh, one time took away a uh, Taylor Swift's award, and it was like Beyonce deserves this award. Another time, uh, back. And when George Bush was president, he he was like, George Bush doesn't care about black people on live TV. Like you follow his career. There's been plenty of moments where he just says something very outlandish. It gets him in trouble. And then he's back in public consciousness again. So I, he, I don't know if you could cancel him, but this is the closest I've seen throughout his like 12 year career of him getting canceled. See, I don't know. I think that, the brands need influencers more than the brands. So, sorry, mm -hmm. more than the influencers need the brands. But yeah. I think this guy is in a is, a, is in a unique position mm -hmm. where he can actually start his own company and be like, "Fuck Adidas! I'm going to start a company that generally sells shoes, and I'm going to encourage my fans to never buy Adidas and just buy my shoes." And because I have such an amazing reach. That might actually work. Right. And the thing with the Yeezys are, is that it attracts hardcore fans. Because they're not cheap shoes, Harsh. They're very expensive shoes. Let me see how much they cost. Um, It's showing. Uh, it costs like $500. But I, I think there are certain ones that cost uh, like $1,000. And there's For even a, a market. Yeah, there's even a market where they'll buy certain easy shoes, they'll wait for it to appreciate, and then they'll sell it for what? profit. Yeah, dude. So these are very, very popular shoes. My only thing is that the shoe business is a difficult business to get in. You also need distributors as well. And I don't know how much of these distributors are connected with a lot of these, you know, these conglomerates, these people behind the scenes. So not only are you responsible for the product, you got to make sure you have a distribution channel, like Foot Locker, Champs, or you can sell it online, sure. But now you, you got to sell it online, yeah. 
yeah, you gotta build your warehouses. Um, it, it's a, it's a, it's a grind, but I'm pretty sure he could figure it out. Yeah, this isn't that hard to figure out, man. The warehouse stuff you can just rent it. So yeah. you get these companies whose entire business is taking your stuff from where you got it, mm-hmm. put it in the warehouse, and then ship it to the customer. This is easy to do. It's not hard at all. Yeah, but you also need like the supplies. You got to make sure you have the correct supplies as well. So you're not just selling cheap stuff. Like you got to have the quality. You will need to hire a proper product designer to come up with a prototype and then find a factory to manufacture it and everything. Mm -hmm. But once it's set up, it's not that hard to do. You should be his business partner. Kanye I wasn't harsh, <laughs> but selling shoes—I don't know. I don't know. Like, I would not sell something I would never purchase. You know, like I would never in my life buy a thousand-dollar shoe. Like, if I do, it would be very unlikely. Mm-hmm. But I've gotten rich to the point where I just stopped giving a shit. Mm-hmm. Right. So th- th- that's been pretty big news for the past um, couple of days to the past couple of weeks. Um, the whole Kanye West thing but i also believe it shows a lot in regards to business it's like damn bro your network can plummet like that um and it, well, it just, yeah sorry so to, I, I i don't like to interrupt you so much but what you're saying is how do you define net worth because if you are taking in the value of something you don't have without multiplying by the probability that you will keep it or you will get it. That's not net worth, right? That's just a pipe dream. Yeah. Well, have you ever heard the like the argument? It's like if I were that rich, I would just give away all my money to solve world hunger. And it's like for a lot of these very wealthy people. Uh, well, let me just take that back. For a lot of people that don't have enough wealth, what they think of money is. Um, there's this Disney cartoon where Donald Duck is like this wealthy man and he's over here swimming in money, <laughs> right? So I, I think a lot of people that are broke, they, that's how they view the rich. They, they see the rich people with swarms and swarms of dollar bills around them and they're just swimming in money. But a lot for a lot of these wealthy people, man, like the wealth, it's actually this invisible concept. It's just like a lot of uh, wealthy people see just numbers or it's invisible to them. Like they don't see a lot of their cash. Usually wealthy people don't have a lot of cash. They Their wealth is in some business or some properties or something. Right. It's not liquid. Liquid Liquidity is something that poor people have more of in us, as a percentage. Mm-hmm. So if you take a rich person who's say, let's say someone worth $20 million. Mm-hmm. At most, he'll have ten thousand dollars in cash or a hundred thousand or something. Okay, so like a very small person for him. But someone who only has thirty thousand dollars is likely to have twenty-five of that in cash, right? Or like in the bank. So having a lot of liquidity as a percentage of your money is something that poor people have more of. Rich people don't have that much liquidity. It's very rare. So if you take someone like Bill Gates. It's unlikely that Bill Gates has billions of dollars in his bank account. Like it, he just he just has a lot of shares in Microsoft. Microsoft right. is valuable, and that's why he's rich. Yeah, but th- do you know a poor person like that who's just like, oh man, like he should just give away all that money, 
And they really do think that most of these people are liquid. Like they have that money in some sort of uh, mattress or some sort of trash bag. It's like, that's just not how it works. A lot of these billionaires are perceptually rich. Like it, it's perception based. And, and like it's like the valuation of the company. How much is it worth? Um, like sure, you could uh, like tie in certain numbers, like how much revenue they're generating and stuff like that. But ultimately, a lot of it comes back to perception, not actual liquid cash. I think for most poor people, they're used to thinking of wealth as how much money they have in their bank account, right? So they mm-hmm. can't wrap their head around the fact that it's not how it works outside of poverty. Right. And if you try explaining it, uh, like they're going to be like, oh, look at this guy making excuses. It's like, no, man, I'm telling you, like a lot of these guys do not have um, what you think they have. Like, it's literally the the Donald Duck swimming in the cash syndrome. There should be a name for that. Hmm, that's a good idea. Let's come up with a name for it. Yeah, man. I mean, Mark, have you been hearing about Mark Zuckerberg? He, I heard his network dropped like a lot recently. Well, what are your thoughts on Meta? I don't know, man. Like the like, I, I believe it got a lot of marketing hype, but the whole concept, like I like it, but at the same time, I don't like it. Like I, I like it in terms of the technical genius of it, where in the future, businesses and such being built uh, in this sphere, like the digitization. I love that part. But in terms of a, like a cultural societal level, I don't know, man. Something about that just feels wrong. I'm not educated enough on it. But I, anything Mark Zuckerberg is involved in, I'm not giving him the benefit of the doubt first. I'm just like, well, <laughs> well, what's the catch? You know what I'm saying? So um, I feel as though like if you give him some leeway with Meta, he's eventually going to make it where you just have like these glasses on and you're just in this invisible world. And he's just over here getting rich. I just don't trust that guy. Something about his mannerisms and such. Have you tried any of these virtual experiences? In college, like, and it was very rudimentary technology, but uh, nothing in detail. So in the past couple of days, I've actually gone out a bit and I've tried a lot of these VR stuff where you wear the VR headset and you kind of go in a different world and once you're in space, then in the ocean and everything. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you something, it feels very real. So the place I went to, it was actually not just that headset, but you were also sitting in a seat that would move and it would give you the vibrations and it would move as if you were in that shuttle. Mm-hmm. So for example, when the rocket was taking off, it would you know, go up and down and make you feel like you were in the rocket shaking. Right. But it feels somewhat real. So after a few minutes, you forget that you're wearing a headset, if the headset is comfortable enough and you just get absorbed into that world. Mm. So, so I think that these meta guys, if they build a good enough place, I can see a lot of people using it. Mm. Because so, I was so very skeptical. Mm-hmm. I'm not pro for it. I'm just like, I tried it out. And I, at first I was very skeptical. Like, I mean, who's going to use this stupid thing, put it on their head and, you know, live in a virtual world. But when I tried it out, it actually... You you can't, after a while, like let's say you, you're using it for like three, four minutes, you stop 
like in your brain, you you know in the back of the head that you know you're wearing this device and you're staring at a screen. But because it's full field of view, and you turn if you if you turn your head, the device's viewpoint also changes. You get absorbed into that world, that virtual world, mm-hmm. and those virtual worlds are pretty good. And if you have that seat as well, which gives you the feeling that you are actually in that space pod or whatever, then it, it's a very captivating experience. And I can see it becoming popular with people because, I mean, if you ask my mother, right, she would say that she would never have imagined that everyone, all the kids would just play on their mobile phones and not go out to play. But here are the kids. So maybe I am thinking like my mom used to think, like, oh, kids will not play VR that's dumb. Mm-hmm. This is so weird. Kids will not do that, but probably they will if the if the world is interesting enough. And I've tried it. It, it it's very mesmerizing. It it sucks you in. So it's very likely the kids will be using VR in the metaverse and what have you. Mm. Were you sitting down or were you standing up and walking as well? I was sitting down on this chair. And this chair was connected to the VR system and the chair would move. So for example, if the roller, let's, I'll give you a roller coaster example. Okay. So if the roller coaster would go up, the chair would face up. When it would go down, it would face down and it would help with the immersion of it. Like you would feel more immersed in the experience. Mm -hmm. And I can see, I can see it becoming popular. Especially as people's lives get harder, right? They need an escape, and this might be that escape. So, are you for it or are you against it? I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things, it's cool, especially if you're, let's say you make movies for a living. It's like it brings your content to a completely different light, right? Or imagine um, that you have a certain avatar. And then there's me. And in the future, Unapologetic Truth episodes, it's like the people that are listening, it's like we're actually talking to them. It's, it feels like they're with us. So th- there's great stuff in terms of entertainment, but uh, people are capable of getting carried away. So you're sharing a picture right now. Oh, you're talking about one of these chairs. Yeah, these types of chairs. And oh. they feel realistic enough when you're sitting on them. Dude, this could change up the, like, the movie theaters. Like, do you guys do... You, did you ever go to a movie theater before where you're just like sitting and watching a, a screen from far away? Yeah, I've been to a movie theater. Okay, yeah, this uh, this actually reminds me a little bit of Disney World where uh, Disney World, uh, like it has, uh, it's like an amusement park, amusement park. I could see Disney World getting a lot of money off of this because that was also my thing. Like, how are you guys going to make money? But I guess there's a lot of potential for that. Yeah, it's it's very immersive. Like I thought it would be I thought it would be complete bullshit. Yeah. And I thought it would be like a cheap experience and I would not like it and you know it's for dorks, but it turned out to be pretty good and pretty immersive and I can see it working. So I don't get why people hate Facebook. Like if you try out the whole virtual thing, I can see it working. Like I you know, I'm not I don't think Meta is 100% going to fail. Now, it might fail. I'm not saying it's going to work, but I can see the possibility. Well, I give them props for taking risks and being an uh, inventor-like spirit. 
The only criticism with Mark Zuckerberg is that he's done a lot of these questionable things where he'll sell your data. The overall perception regarding Mark Zuckerberg is that there's something shady about him, whether it's his mannerisms. Like you, you could say, oh, well, he's a dorky kind of guy. But still, like I'm just talking about like the general perception of Mark Zuckerberg. It's like they think he's a lizard in a human's body. See, I tell you my opinion of Mark Zuckerberg, okay? Mm-hmm. He comes off as the guy who would sell his mother. <laughs> did, and did you always feel like that about him? No, but lately, like given the kind of stuff he does, mm-hmm. it's, he, he doesn't come off as a guy who has a sense of morality or values. Right. He does what the situation calls for and what is in his best interests. Hmm. But he doesn't I mean, do anything beyond that. I mean, if you think about it, Harsh, like our generation has pretty much seen him grow up. Like he really uh, came into the scene. And from what I recall, 2005-ish, bro. Let me think. Be- have you heard of MySpace? I remember hearing about it back in school, but mm-hmm. by the time I grew up to have a social media account, it was gone. There was also Orkut. Orkut, yeah. So MySpace was the cool thing back in the days. Like you used to have a top five, uh, so you could choose your top five uh, best friends. Uh, that created a lot of enemies <laughs> where someone will be like, I'm not in your top five, but Ricky is. <laughs> What's that uh, about? So, so MySpace used to be very popular, uh, but somewhere along the line, I believe in 2005, uh, there was talk about this thing called Facebook. Initially, Facebook was for college students, but eventually it started to become more and more popular. And this was when Mark Zuckerberg was like 21, 22 years old. Um, he had like this messy hair. Uh, he looked like a straight up college kid. And this guy is about to you know, be the founder of one of the most revolutionary piece of technology that's going to change the next decade. And we, we've basically seen him go from this 21-year-old boy, and he's 38 now, to turning into a man. And, you know, like, he's always been socially awkward. That Somewhere along the lines, like, his integrity has been questioned. Not once, but many times. See, I think that a lot of it is just because he has no other alternative, right? His company, Facebook, it doesn't have an intrinsic way to make money outside of advertisements. Yeah, and he's pretty much playing in uncharted territories. Like, who do you, like, look at and see? You know, a lot of the decisions you're making, uh, there hasn't been these colossal tech giants before. You know, like, you could say, oh, what about the printing press, Uh, you know? But in this era, man, it's a completely different ballgame. It's way more complex. See, if you ask me, like, this is just my opinion, but we've had monopolies and extremely large companies in the past, but this is the first time where the product of the company is detrimental to society heavily, where social media is something that rips people's, um, that it rips, it's ripping society apart in a way, and it's destroying what people have had for thousands of years, that is functioning system and a way of living. And it's replacing it with something that has never been tried before. And that's where the question comes in. Would we be better off if Facebook didn't exist? 
And that's that's the first question. Like Facebook itself seems like a company that's against the people. Mm-hmm. It seems an anti-humanity company. Secondly, the business model isn't there, right? This is not a company that is making money by selling you something. This is a company that's making money by selling you. Mm-hmm. Their main way of making money is by showing you advertisements and to show you relevant ads, they need to collect as much data as possible. But the data they're collecting also allows them to do nefarious things and to manipulate you in ways that you don't want to be manipulated. And when people think like Facebook is spying on you, it doesn't mean that Facebook has cameras going around spying on you. This is more like they have these algorithms which figure out patterns in data that you might not be able to figure out. And you are giving away more information than you realize because these algorithms have so much context. I'll give you like an analogy to help you understand, okay? Mm -hmm. Let's say there's a detective and the detective meets a guy and the the detective says, okay, let's say the detective is Sherlock Holmes and the detective tells the other guy, so you're from this town in Germany and you like smoking this brand of cigarettes and you tend to walk instead of drive a car. And the guy would be like, hey, how do you know that? I just met you. And the the detective might say, I see that there's dirt on your shoes. That means you walked. And people who speak in this accent typically are from that type of you know, town in Germany. Mm-hmm. And people there smoke this brand of cigarettes. So now that's what information this guy has given to the detective. But he has shown... Awareness. No, he, the, the way he has behaved has conveyed that information to an extremely alert and knowledgeable observer. Now, these algorithms are those extremely alert and knowledgeable observers because they have so much data from so many people that they can form very complicated but accurate patterns in them. So you might say, you might just have a profile picture and you might think, okay, I'm not, I only consent to giving away my profile picture, but your profile picture might have information that you don't want to give away. So, for example, let's say that you post a picture of your car and you're just posting a picture of your car, but, you know, maybe the algorithm by looking at your car can figure out how much money you make, where you go to and what what have you. you know, just an example, just like the Sherlock Holmes thing. This guy can figure out where this guy lives by looking at his shoes and the way he talks. So... And that's the kind of stuff that Facebook has access to that people don't know about or they don't think about, but they don't want Facebook to have that access. But Facebook needs that access to survive. So Facebook as a company needs to do something that people don't like to them. Like they need to do something that, that people don't consider good for them. And the product it's providing to people is also not good for people. Do you get me? So it's for this mm-hmm. company to survive, it has to fuck over the people. And the product the company is producing is also fucking over the people. Right. So, so there's that's a lot of- mm-hmm. the way that like you can you can say I you could make a fair claim that if someone was to ban Facebook and completely remove social media, humanity would be better off. Yeah, I mean, see that's the that's the one thing that you know I see an argument for. 
uh, well, you made an argument against Facebook, the the dark sides of it. Uh, let me just talk about the good sides of Facebook too, just so it's uh, <laughs> you know, just so we're not over here agreeing too much. Let's not shill for Facebook, Herman. Yeah, yeah, I'm not gonna shill for Facebook, but the, the, there's two things that stick out in regards to Facebook. A good thing. One thing that I've noticed is that you're capable of connecting with people from around the globe that otherwise it would have been difficult to connect with. Where Harsh, when I was first coming to the US, uh, let's say in 1998, if we wanted to contact our family in Bangladesh, we had to get this thing called a phone card. We had to over here, like, you know, rip the black part of the back off, uh, get this code and put it into a phone. And there's all this hoopla in order to uh, hear a staticky uh, uh, voice of our grandma, you know? Uh, where nowadays, it's like, it's so easy to stay in touch with multiple people from all around the planet. So it's a lot easier to, uh, it's a lot easier to uh, have global communications. So that's one pro. The second pro is that it's changed up marketing as we know it. Or back in the days, like your predominant form of marketing was uh, what? <laughs> you, you run an ad on mass marketing TV. Okay, uh, that's like, it's very difficult to measure, but it, it'll do for the time being. Where with Facebook, uh, let's say you have a Shopify store uh, where you're selling uh, like a mouse uh, for video gamers. You could literally target so niched where back in the days, you just couldn't do that. And a lot of these Shopify guys are like, yeah, man, like Facebook ads has made us a lot of money. So those are the two like good things in regards to Facebook that uh, I can just recall uh, from the uh, like real quick. So it comes with a lot of dark, but I, I believe they survived for this long because they've also had some of these values that they've added, which we've never uh, had back in the days. See, I agree with that. Social media has value, of course, but you're talking about I'm, net positive, net negative. Yeah, I mean that over the long run. I think the cost that you end up paying is higher than what you get. But, you know, this is like a mood conversation, right? Because even if we were to delete Facebook, because there's demand for it, a new one would show up. Yeah, dude. I mean, we're the guinea pig era. Like, there's never been uh, an era that you can compare it to. It's like, you remember how earlier you said, like, when there is no product, you are the product? It's like, when there is no data, you are the data. Like in like 30, 40 years, people are going to be analyzing our generation and they're gonna be like, well, did these people become fuck ups or what? Or did they use it wisely? Like what happened with them? So I believe we're the, we're the test case. You could say that. But in many ways, man, like uh, for us to even have this conversation right now, like you're in India, I'm in Florida. I wonder how much ripple effects Facebook had in terms of, you know, building this global communication where you're not just building technology for the sake of building technology, you're building technology for the means of connecting people. I wonder if there's some level of inspiration that Zoom and uh, what are we recording this on? StreamYard got from Facebook, whether they're even aware of it or not. Probably, but see, I, I'll tell you what, okay? If you think about it, we went for thousands of years without a lot of technology, right? 
so we don't need technology per se it's not something that humans need to be around and i'm not against technology of course i love tech but i think this particular type of technology the social media thing has a tendency to make us so individualistic that not just individualistic but it just it's it breaks apart you could say the the fabric our society is based on mm-hmm. and you could say this about a lot of other previous tech as well i think that eventually technology might beat humanity and i'll tell you what i mean okay mm-hmm. technology has a very sticky factor and it eventually becomes mandatory for example restaurants in india they no longer give you a menu to order food from them you have to first scan a qr code and then you see the menu on your phone but what are the implications of that it means that you're forced to have a smartphone if you don't have a smartphone then you can't order at a lot of these restaurants so earlier smartphone was a choice but now it's not mm-hmm. when cars came out cars were a choice you could either own a car or not but nowadays because everybody or most people have a car all the grocery shops and everything are like 50 miles away or you know in non retard i'm sorry i use miles <laughs> but they're far away and you have to have a car now because most people have a car so technology is something that it starts out as optional but it becomes compulsory very fast and we are getting to a point where sooner than later we'll have things like brain surgery to make you smarter or to make you less shy or whatever and mm-hmm. it it will start out as something that would be non compulsory right like i mean what is the disadvantage if you get some surgery done to make you less shy that's a good thing right but then we would end up in an environment where there are so few shy people that it's a liability to be shy and then everyone has to get the surgery now or let's say that you could get a chip implanted in your brain that would make you unable to feel stressed mhm so at first it would be optional it would be like hey so what like if you don't want to get it don't get it if you want to get it get it right but look at the implications of it let's say that at your job everyone or most people have this chip that means they can work harder and for longer without getting stressed meanwhile you feel overwhelmed after a while so you can't compete with the people who have the chips in their brains so you are forced to get that chip implanted in you so it started as a choice but then it became forced because you needed to compete and a lot of things will go this route as technology develops and we are on the cusp of things like crispr and gene editing and things will start innocently for example you know you can edit your gene so that you know the kid that is born will not be you know it will cure some disease or something you know and those are the positives mm-hmm. but eventually you will have things like edit your genes to make your skin lighter or make yourself prettier make your hair better and things like that and then it would become harder for you to compete without this gene editing so it would become something like if you want your kid to succeed in the world you should get his genes edited and then it's no longer you know optional so i think that technology as it evolves it becomes mandatory and 
we are getting closer to things like transhumanism, but it will not be an optional technology. It would be compulsory. And at some point, we would get to a situation where man would be beaten by technology, per se. You would not be left with humanity as we know it today. It's mm. a very um... dystopian way of thinking, I know. Yeah, I mean, Dan Brown wrote a book on what you're describing, and he's a fiction author. So <laughs> there's a lot of truth uh, to this fiction where, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, it's already happened now where technology, especially a smartphone, like it, it's pretty much an added layer of skin to you because if you don't have your smartphone, uh, you're right. Uh, you can't go to a lot of these restaurants. And man, that, that's a very... What you're describing with technology is a very similar to like steroids in a lot of these athletic sports where it starts off as like, okay, well, these guys are outliers, but eventually so many people began taking it where if you even want to be a pro, you have to take it. And it's like, oh man, I really don't want to take it, but I need the money. And now you're over here taking it. Have you heard of Prisoner's Dilemma? No. Let me Sounds familiar, you... but I don't know what it is. So this whole tech thing I'm describing is kind of like Prisoner's Dilemma. Let me get, show you what I mean, okay? Mm-hmm. Let me give you what Prisoner's Dilemma is. So take this situation. First, let me share my screen. So there are two prisoners and they've gotten caught by the police. And what happens here is that, let's say that, so these two prisoners, they've been separated out by the police and they're being questioned individually. And Mm -hmm. two things can happen. Either you can confess or you could not say anything. So either you could say this other guy is a criminal or you could say he is not, like I'm not going to say anything. And the same thing the other guy can do. So both people have the option of ratting the other out or they they might choose to not not rat them out. Do you get it? Yes. So now if in case one of them rats the other out, then that the person who's ratting them out gets like one year in prison and the person who is ratted out gets like a long sentence. Okay. In case both of them don't rat anyone out, both of them say, you know, I don't know, I'm just silent. They don't rat the other out. Then they get two years each. And in case they both confess, like they both rat each other out, then they both get five years in prison. So do you get that? Did you get the situation? Yes, I did. So if both of you rat each other out, then you get five years. If none of you rat each other out, then you get two years each. And if one of you rats the other out, but the other one doesn't, then mm-hmm. the one who got ratted out spends like a long ass time in prison. He spends like eight years. Eight years. But because you ratted them out, you get like a much lower sentence. You only get one year. Now, think about it from a rational person's perspective, okay? If you think this other person, let's say that this prisoner B is going to remain silent, like he's not going to rat you out, then you should rat him out. Because ratting him out will get you a lesser sentence. You only get one year instead of getting two years. Get it? 
Yes. On the other hand, if you think this other person is going to confess, you should still rat him out. Because if you don't rat him out, you're going to get eight years. But if you do rat him out, you get five years. True. So regardless of what you do, you should always rat the other person out, regardless of what they do. And they are thinking the same thing. So the equilibrium, the Nash equilibrium here, is that you will both always rat each other out. But if you think about it, this is not the optimal outcome because both of you combined, you end up spending 10 years in prison combined. But if you had both remained silent, you would have spent only two years, four years in prison combined. Do you mm -hmm. get me? But yes. the incentives are such that both of you will want to confess. Did you understand did... the dilemma? Yes, I do. I'm trying to think, like, did they ever run a simulation of a... Uh, Actually, they have. Experiment? There are lots they of have? strategies, and the one that works best is called it for that. I've been studying a lot of this game theory stuff for a while now. Can you so speak what... something? I think our audio disconnected. Testing, testing, Mike 2. Yeah, Mike 2. yeah it's working. Okay, cool. So what do so, people normally choose? If you are not going to see the person again, people will normally choose this. But if there's a random chance that, you know, this interaction is going to keep on happening, then people will typically pick this. It depends on the probability. So, for example, let's say that you go buy something in a shop. The shopkeeper has the option of giving you the fake good and you have the option of giving him fake money. But because you know that you're going to shop at the shop again, you're going to give him real stuff and he's going to give you, you know, real goods. So the theory, and this holds good in general, and a lot of real systems, this really does apply, like BitTorrent and what have you, where people will cooperate given the fact that there's a chance that they are going to interact with each other again. But if that is not the situation, where it's a one-time thing, then people will typically not cooperate. Or you know they will tend to not cooperate. They will tend to confess. Mm -hmm. So for I'll give you an example, okay? Let's say that you are a seller on eBay and you're just selling one item and I'm a purchaser, I'm only buying one item. Then I might not send you the check. I might not send you the money and you might not send me the good or you might send me something fake. And we, are, we both have incentives to do that, right? <clears throat> because yep. if you were going to send me real money, if you're going to act, the check would actually get in my account. Like this is the pre think about the pre PayPal days. Then I would make more money by not sending you the product because I would keep the money and send you something fake and not send you anything. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you were sending me fake money, if the check was going to bounce, then I should definitely not send you a, a, the real product. So I'm incentivized in either case to not send you the real shirt and vice versa. Right. So in general, when you have a repeated situation, you tend to see people remaining silent and not co you know, cooperating with each other. And when it's a one-time thing, people will typically bounce and they would, not, they would rat each other out in the situation. And I should not be using cooperate because generally these things say cooperate with police and don't cooperate with police. So it might be confusing for people who have heard this before. Mm -hmm. But... The point is that tech is tech is a bit like this, okay? Where let's say that you can get a brain implant done which prevents you from getting stressed. 
So now you are in a situation where you get paid more than other people because you are more productive. But you should get this implant regardless of uh, whether the other person is getting an implant or not. Because if other people are getting that implant, then you should get it because then you can't, uh, you can't compete otherwise. But if other people are not getting it, then you should get it so that you can outcompete them. But because everyone's doing it, <coughs> everyone's going to get that brain implant. You're all, you're all going to get paid the same. Because you know, no one's out competing anybody. You are all just very started, but now you have the brain implants. Right. Do you get me? Yep. So you just gamed yourself. But that's the equilibrium where you, everyone's in, everyone is incentivized to get the brain implant done. But as a society, we're better off no, if no one does it. So individually, everyone should get the brain implant done. Because everyone is better off. Because if other people don't get it done, then you're better off. If other people get it done, then you should get it done. Otherwise, you're screwed. So you're better off getting the brain implant done. And everyone thinks this way. But because everyone's done it, now there's no advantage of having a brain implant. So as a society, you're still where in the same situation as if no one had a brain implant. Yeah, man, this, this is actually very interesting stuff. I, I never knew that there was like... I've, you actually brought up the prisoner's dilemma before. That's why as you were explaining it, I was like, oh, okay. But this time you brought up the picture, so I actually got it. And I'm just thinking about nowadays and practical experience. When does this happen? One time it does happen a lot is with gangs, where when two people get caught, the cops usually try to do the prisoner's dilemma. They're like, yo, just rat out your cousin and you'll be good to go. You don't have to go to jail like your cousin. And a lot of other situations I see this in, Harsh, are with landlords here where uh, there's a, there's like a person that'll sometimes come they'll just rent like a month or two and they'll be like ah, i'm not gonna pay the landlord on time and then what begins to happen is that the landlord is increasing the price for everyone uh, within the apartment complex because now like, there's that thought in the landlord's mind well what if uh, these people don't pay on time like i still need to uh, get the money on time and it has all these tiered effects. So I don't know if that ties into the prisoner's dilemma, but I wonder how many of these stuff that the prisoner's dilemma actually does tie into. You spotted a connection with technology. A lot of things. Like you would be surprised, but it comes off in a lot of situations mm -hmm. where the individual incentives kind of collide with the group incentives. Mm -hmm. One funny example that came up is... Um, we brought up the phrase heightist before, where you discriminate against someone with heights. There's these shoes uh, that uh, make you taller, but you can't even like notice it. So it's like, imagine if a bunch of short people all wear the shoes. <laughs> now they're all the same size. So it doesn't, because um, before, like if only one person was aware of the shoe, then it made some sense because now they're sticking their head above the other short people. But if all the short people buy the shoes, like is it still advantageous or? what see i think that this thing can be this whole concept of prisoner's dilemma mm -hmm. uh, for like large groups can be extended with some kind of critical point where after a certain percentage of people are doing it then it's going to quickly shoot up to 100 very fast to give you an example let's say that you have a group of 100 women okay and 100 women and they're going to be picked by 100 guys so Let's take wearing makeup. 
Now, individually, they should all wear makeup. Because if they wear makeup and other people, other girls don't, then they'll be hotter and they'll get a better guy. But if, say, other girls are also wearing makeup, then they should also wear makeup because otherwise they will not be able to compete. So regardless of what other people do, individually, each girl would want to wear makeup. But because mm. all of these girls are thinking this way, all of them will end up wearing makeup. Okay. And because they're all wearing makeup, makeup has no value anymore. Because they're all in the same ranking, right? No one's beaten anyone else. Right. I mean, I mean, we're discounting the fact that some girls look better in makeup than they did. But, but, I mean, I'm just being general. Let's say that they can double their appearance. If they're a four, now they're an eight. If they were a nine, now they're 18, etc. So the ranking would be the same. So now they just wasted money on makeup, but no one has go- no one is better off. <laughs> so there was a societal cost because everyone is doing it, but no one is actually getting anything from it. Now in in the real world, there is a certain percentage after which something becomes mainstream. For example, in the real world, if say that there's one percent of people getting brain chips get in their head. That's not going to make you get a brain chip done, okay? But that 1% will slowly increase and increase and increase. At a slow pace, maybe say it increases by 1% a year or something. Some some slow pace. Mm-hmm. But at some point, say 60% of people have a brain implant. At that point, I'm just assuming, but this say that this is a critical point. The rate of increase would suddenly start to shoot up because other people would find it hard to compete. So there's a certain point where the people who are not participating start to feel the effects of not participating a lot. And then they're forced to participate. And you can say this with anything, okay? If you take cryptocurrencies, if 60% of people are using cryptocurrencies, then the other 40% have to use it. And adoption would skyrocket because they have to use it. Because 60% of people are only accepting cryptocurrencies. So in real life situations, we have prisoners dilemma with individual incentives. And there is a certain point after which things start to exponentially get to 100%. So for example, earlier, maybe that you didn't know how you, you did not need to know how to use a computer. But now you need to know it because you need to know you need to use it for everything. And that kind of skyrocketed after a certain percentage of people were using computers. Yeah. Man, that, that made my brain hurt in, in, in a good way because it's one of those things where it's like, it's a concept that you know makes logical sense. And once you know that it makes logical sense, you want to tie it into your life. Like the thought experiments help, but it's like, man, what moments in my life can I tie this prisoner's dilemma into? So it comes alive for me. Uh, but you are right about that, man, where with history, I mean, there was a certain period where the personal computer, it was seen as just a toy. Skybeam was like personal computer. No one's going to be using that. That's for hobbyists. And this is when like these ambitious young entrepreneurs were like, no, in the future, you're going to need a computer. If you don't at least know how to use a computer, then you're going to be walking around with one leg. That's going to be the equivalent. So 
uh, just think about that, man. Like one of the biggest computer organizations were scoffing at the personal computer. And decades later, it's like you can't even imagine life without a computer if you're running some sort of business or such. Even if you work in a corporation nowadays, like what 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 do you really do in a corporation? <laughs> you're probably just clicking buttons on a computer. So you never know like w- when these sort of little tiny changes add up. True, so what- but think mm-hmm. think in a more complex way. This applies to way more things than just tech. It applies to a lot of things. It applies to any situation where the individual incentives are different from the group incentives. Yeah. I'll one give you thing- one more example, but go mm-hmm. ahead. Well, one of the examples that I could think of was for a while, Amazon, where they were like, they were doing this thing called like an Amazon influencer program. Did you hear about that? Yeah, I used to be a part of it. Yeah, like they didn't really pay you that much money. But like, I saw what they were trying to do. They were trying to get everything in the Amazon like atmosphere. Like, like, yeah, yeah, you could build your own store here. You could sell your own products here. You could do this, this, that here. And suddenly you're like really dependent upon the system because they do everything. But I still don't think that connects with the prisoner's dilemma thing. So uh, I think you were just going to give an example. No, like I'm just coming up, coming up with this on the spot, but mm-hmm. take, take anything. Okay. Take, take any, any system that society needs mm-hmm. where the system only works if people believe in the system. So for example, if you take something like lying, okay, where if everyone's if 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 everyone's honest, and he, there's one person who lies, everyone's incentivized to uh, wait. Let me let me free frame this because it's slightly complex. Hold up, <laughs> dumb it down for me. Okay, let's say that you go to a shop, okay, mm-hmm. and let's say since you mentioned Amazon, let's say Amazon, Amazon has this policy where you can return anything if you don't like it. Let's suppose, and. You're buying clothes. So your incentives are that as a buyer, you might just buy something, wear it once, and then return it. It matters to girls. Girls don't like wearing the same clothes twice. So that's an incentive for you, right? Mm-hmm. And you should do this when you should get the if you know if you're like a a robotic machine, you would do this every single time because it would benefit you. But because it's not just you doing it and everyone doing it, this whole guarantee will go away because then Amazon would stop making money. Right. So, but but this is not happening. This this isn't happening in all societies. It's happening in some societies. So what's the difference? One second. So, some people are capable of just nitpicking in the butt quick because i'll give you an example i don't know if it ties in with the prisoner's sorry, dilemma yeah, yeah go ahead go ahead you go sorry uh, i was just like my throat well, is not so good today so but so this comes down to trust level right like the critical point i was telling you so let's say in a society five percent of people are dishonest now that is something that amazon can handle but if in a society 55% of people are dishonest, then no one will offer any of these guarantees. So there are critical points where things kind of go from zero to 100. Mm-hmm. 
I need to work on this a bit more in my head, but I'm, I'm just trying to give you the gist of how I'm thinking right now. No, I'm definitely getting the gist of what you're saying. Uh, and like if 60% of people are likely to return, then the return policy would go away. Yeah. And I do know some people that do that. They'll literally buy something with the intention of using it once and then returning it. A lot of people used to do that with prom. <laughs> um, I don't know if you have a prom over there, uh, but chargebacks would be a good example of this. Like chargeback. If everyone started chargebacking, then no one can charge back anymore. Yeah. Or even communism, where so, workers will strike and strike to get communism. But if they get communism, they they lose their ability to strike. Yeah, like in my last company. Um, there was a certain period we had a dress code. You had to wear a dress shirt, dress pants, the usual. And one of the veteran members, um, let's call him Dennis. He was like, you know, back in the days, like oh, we could have uh, like worn whatever, right? I was like, I didn't know that. How come we can't do that anymore? And he's like, because of Stacy. I was like, who? It's like Stacy. So she used to uh, come into uh, the office with these short, short skirts on. Right. And she was pretty attractive. So a lot of the senior managers were looking her way. And immediately one day, uh, the management team from Chicago came, they saw what was going on and they felt as though eventually more people were going to be dressing super liberal like that. And after then we had a dress code. So, um, <laughs> yeah, dude. So, you know, I thought it was very unfair. I was like, what the hell? Like, I'm hearing this as a history lesson from my fellow Pure Dennis. I was like, man, what the hell, bro? One person ruined it for everyone. See, that's but, a different thing. That's a, that's more like an ex. That, that, I would say that's a different model, not prisoner's dilemma. That's more like, you know, one extreme case ruining the entire thing, right? Like one terrorist, and now we have to all, you know, take our shoes off at the airport. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah, but I, I, I mean, from the perspective of the management team, I, I think what they saw was like more and more people were going to eventually do that. So they didn't just view it as one person and that's it. They're like, no, no, I, I see more. I see these skirts getting shorter and shorter. We better nip this in the butt quick. Yeah, makes sense. Huh? You're right. But I don't think that. No, it's not, those... it's not what the, it's not what the, oh yeah, go ahead. Uh, and I know what you mean. Mm. But I don't see how one girl wearing short skirts encourages everyone to do it. Dude. Unless like, she got something, she got advantage out of it. So that's a different thing. Man, she's getting some eyeballs out of it, bro. If you're ever in the engineering department, most of these are dudes that work in the engineering field. So if you got like one girl uh, wearing a short, like a short skirt, you're going to be looking at her. And then who knows? Maybe uh, like a few of the other women on the floor are like, what the heck? Like, look at her getting all these eyeballs. Uh, let's shorten the skirt a little bit more and let's see what happens with us. I'm not saying that's exactly what happens. That's how a lot of these fashion trends and such get started. I think the reason you had a dress code was to avoid some kind of harassment suit or something, you know? Yeah, it, it was because of the harassment suit, but I'm also pretty sure uh, it was because of the shirts getting, uh, the skirts getting shorter and shorter. Arman, my throat is no longer cooperating with me. I think we need to end the podcast for today. Okay. Uh, this was a fun podcast. Uh, we talked about a lot of different topics. Um, if you guys have yeah, any questions for us, mm -hmm. if you guys have any questions for us, uh, feel free to post it in the comment section and we will answer it in the next episode. And thank you guys very much for joining. Uh, any final words, Harsh? 
No, I think I'm out of words for today. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, take care. We'll see you next episode. Bye-bye, everyone.